Welcome to the Wildly Capable Podcast by NovoEd, hosted by Todd Moran and Alex Gruen. On Wildly Capable, we explore unusual sources of deep capabilities and unexpected insights on human capital. On this episode, Todd and I interview Kate Berardo, Vice President of Leader Development at Meta. We're going to, we just can't wait to dig into your unconventional and unexpected journey, Kate, and your perspectives on building capabilities and cultural competencies across the global workforce. But I thought it might be fun to kick off today's taping a little differently than we usually do here on Wildly Capable. Uh, should I be getting nervous? I, no, <laughs> I think I think you'll like this. Um, this should this should be this should be fun. Uh, I'm I'm taking a, a lead from you and an icebreaker from your book, Building Cultural Con- Competence, Innovative uh, Activities and Models, which provides a wide variety of tools for creating culturally responsive learning environments. And the exercise that we're going to do right now is number twenty three, called Cultural Artifact. Um, and it's developed by your frequent collaborator, Darla Deardoff. And, uh, and per the book, it helps participants explore their own cultural self-awareness while getting to know each other better. And I'm going to ask both you and Todd to participate. Does that sound like a plan? Good. Todd, did you have any line of sight to this? Now I should be the one that is nervous. All right. All right. Both of you. Here we go. Choose one item or object that you have with you or around you that tells something about your cultural background and not necessarily about you personally. A good example from the book, you might say, my watch, because my life is governed by schedules and because in my culture, schedules are very important. And I'll give you both about 15 seconds to think on this that we can edit out after the fact. And then special guest first, we'll start with Kate, shift to Dodd, and then do a debrief. So 15 seconds and go. All right, I'm ready. All right, Kate, you're Pressure ready. Todd. <laughs> how and why, what is the object and how and why did you choose it? Well, um, I know we're audio, but for um, for Alex and Todd behind me, you can probably see the VR headset that I have. So I chose that um, because it represents certainly modern technology, like alternate environments, et cetera. And um, both the Calif- the culture of California, I think the culture of the US and certainly the work culture I'm I'm in is very focused on these um, different forms of environments. And as I think we'll learn as we go deeper in, that's been one of my most favorite ways of growing as a person is throwing myself into a different environment. Awesome. All right, Todd, all you. Well, that seems far too articulate from, from the author of, of the, the actual icebreaker uh, and, and the tool, but let me see if I can try to follow suit. Kate. Todd, can, uh, I, can I let you in on a little secret before you go? I have been sweating it since Alex said this, because I wrote that book, um, I think now nine years ago. And I'm like, what are we doing? (laughs) It's brilliant. It's brilliant. (laughs) Okay. Well, to take pity on me, if mine is not, not entirely on point, but, um, so I, mine's twofold. And again, this will be a little challenging for folks that are just in, uh, sort of listening to us, but, um, I, I, I picked, um, you know, sort of oft used and a huge part of my arsenal, uh, classic dry erase marker. And if you can't quite see it from the sheen behind me is wall to wall surrounding my entire office, eight foot that I, I uh, painted uh, as whiteboard um, space. And I, I picked this because this idea of 
expressiveness of communication and being able to connect people through visual thinking is been a part of, I think, professionally, my entire ethos uh, is how do you connect more closely to people and being able to do that visually has, has been a part sort of, of my of my ethos. So maybe I went a bit too personal on that side, but I, I think we need more of that candidly in, the, in, in this world as inclusiveness by, by way of sort of visual thinking. So that is that is my selection expo marker and uh righty board uh floor to ceiling whiteboard for creative outlet i love it can i just say i the the meaning making from a dry erase marker is you, you got deep there i was that's impressive <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's friday we're, we're, we're riffing here yeah, okay, we're riffing. i love it <laughs> First official question, can you talk a little bit about the importance and, and the power, candidly, of, of cultural self-awareness today in, in a progressively sort of more globalized, more distributed, perhaps you know, hybrid and perpetuity world for, for all of us? You know, a little bit about those, those, those themes of both importance and power around cultural self-awareness as, as you and I shared our own independent ones. What does that mean for you know, the broader workforce uh, out there? Yeah, it's such a critical um, skill and also mindset. So one of the ways that I often think about this is there's the, the beautiful quote from Anais Nin, who's a French Cuban writer, who says, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. So one of the first steps in building sort of cultural awareness is really recognizing that your point of view is just one of many. It's not the singular truth. It's not the only way to look at a situation. And that alone tends to invite curiosity, right? Like curiosity to understand how did somebody else experience that meeting? How did somebody else um, interpret what just happened? And that fosters a deeper form of learning. And then that self-awareness is like, okay, I aim to be direct, but direct is a pretty culturally bound concept. So Dutch directness looks different than American directness, which looks different than what is considered direct in like Japan, something like that. So whether you're talking national cultures or even company cultures, a lot of those concepts, people have different norms. Now, that doesn't mean we get stuck in cultural relativity, like everything works because there's so many different things we might need to, to take a stand on how we want to work. But then we have to realize that so for some people, that'll be very natural because maybe you're inviting them to work in the way that they've always worked. And then for other people, you're really asking them to work outside of their cultural norms. And so even just having that awareness, um, think about people who are working in their non-native language, they're working twice as hard. And by the end of the day, they're going to be doubly exhausted. When I think about the mental load I've carried in a singular day, and then think about doing all of that in another language, like there's just so much underneath this idea of when you are culturally aware, it's understanding yourself, understanding how you might come across and then leveraging that to really think about the experience of others that tends to cultivate empathy, curiosity, the desire to listen, openness to different points of view. And that's just so critical to kind of yield all that um, like diverse teams offer, but it isn't guaranteed unless you're doing that work to try and really understand those differences. And what you're taking, do you think we're putting the right degree of emphasis on that today is, is large scale enterprises and, and workforces, or is that sort of been um, isolated to a select few and it's given a lot of lip service, you know, at the, at the board level or, or sort of top leadership level, but we, we need to be doing far more as sort of a collective, a collective workforce. I, um, I am a person that is perpetually unsatisfied in the best way possible. Like I'm an optimist maybe, and I always think we can do better. So would I be like, no, check, we're done on this dimension? No way. Um, I also think 
in, in particular, we, we need to be mindful. So you have this interesting dynamic happening right now where in the past couple of years, people have locked down. So the number of people they've been organically running into, the environments that they've been, they've, they've, they've shrunk. And so our worlds have literally and sometimes figuratively become smaller. Now, the figurative part is the, is the worrisome part, right? Because when it's, it means we're not thinking about uh, our colleague on the other side of the world and what their experience might be and what might be happening for them. And we're not running into people. Um, you don't just you know, find somebody in a random Zoom room, you have to orchestrate that. Um, and so it's a very important time, I think, as we come back and we're thinking about hybrid effectiveness to be incredibly mindful of the different experiences people are having, the different needs people have, whether it's you know, national cultural differences or just life circumstances. You know, we've seen that with people who had young kids in COVID who were, versus those who were living um, alone, like, and were isolated. And there were pluses and minuses to all of those situations. So we're in a ripe moment, I would say, to really tap into higher levels of cultural awareness. And I will honor it's hard. One of the reasons I have lived in six different countries is to not have a theoretical understanding of other cultures, but to live it, to struggle it, to get up and be like, oh, I feel really incapable of navigating because I'm in Japan and I'm illiterate because I don't understand, you know, the katakana and the kanji and the hiragana. And so I'm missing the, the, the core pieces. Wow, that feels hard, right? Now, how am I going to get around? So I think um, I strongly encourage people and it, it doesn't have to be as global as going to Japan, you can go to the next neighborhood. You can just push yourself out of your comfort zone. You can interact with people who you might not interact with and do a little bit of bridging. And that does a ton to keep us on the edge of um, our understanding and therefore our sensitivity to all these different types of differences. Where does art factor into that? Um, instead of necessarily going outside and traveling next door to the next neighborhood. They can turn on uh, a, a song from a new artist or they can go and read a book from somebody's alternative perspective or they can go and see a different piece of theater or go to a museum and exhibit. How can or where does art factor in there? I would house myself this idea of art being a place of interest. So I'll give you a very specific story. When I moved, um, I'm referencing Japan quite a lot today, it sounds like in our story. When I moved there, I had a really um, varied set of reactions from friends and family, from someone, you know, someone innocuously being like, how's China? I'm like, wouldn't know, because that's not where I am. Um, <laughs> I'm in Sapporo. Uh, to somebody getting really curious about my experience. And when I started to unpack that and say, Hey, I literally, it was a Romanian colleague I had worked with. And I said, what? I love it. You're so interested. What, what's prompted that? It turned out he was a big fan of cars and because of his um, being sort of a car aficionado, he had then gotten into anime, the, the um, sort of Japanese cartoon. It just had um, kind of created this interest that was initially niche and then had expanded. So I put art in that same category where I actually started a company or when I was, um, gosh, it was 2003 called Culturosity. And it was with that premise of like, take something you're already interested in. Okay, art, let's go there. And like from art, you can then branch into a deeper understanding. What is it about that artist? What was their lived experience that created this beautiful art? What was the environment they grew in? You know, the, so I think we can take people's natural interests and use that to bridge into different cultures and it's it's a sort of a beautiful entryway and at the same time there's an explicit 
need and wish and effort on learning and training providers part to do that at scale and as efficiently and as speedily as possible. And a few weeks ago, and I want to talk to you about perspective switching at scale and also in a micro format. Um, a few weeks ago, had the opportunity to interview Mario Musa on our book club program. And um, he, he wrote The Culture Puzzle and is a professor at Penn. And he talked about, he quoted uh, Pierre Bourdieu, um, the sociologist, who, who talked about cultural virtuosity and the idea mm -hmm. of being, being culturally virtuosic. And in a nutshell, it means that they can see their world, uh, the workforce through many different lenses. They're adept mm -hmm. um, at reading and working with a, a wildly different set of rules and belief systems across an organization. And uh, so that's an, you know, that's a, that's a micro case. And then you've got everybody who does not necessarily have that capability, but still needs to be able to integrate themselves into a culture that you want to train to integrate into a culture. How do you do it for, you know, capable leaders um, uh, that demonstrate, you know, the possibility of cultural, cultural virtuosity? How do you train folks for that? And then how do you do that at scale across a massive enterprise organization? Uh, with folks that may not necessarily be geared towards seeing things through different lenses? Yeah, I mean, these are complex um, sort of dynamics, I think, that you're articulating when you're describing what I call dexterity or agility, right? That ability to even style shift. Um, I'm a deep believer. In fact, we chat often, um, I'm against, which surprises people, uh, the, the, the term inclusive leadership. I'm very much a big proponent of people being inclusive in their leadership. The issue I have is that we define inclusive leadership as if it's a brand, as if it's a type and therefore like an optional form of leadership. And I'm like, oh no, 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 like good leadership is inclusive. I would argue it's not that hard to lead people that are like you. To truly lead, you need to be leading people from, uh, be able to lead people from a variety of different backgrounds. So then to your question of, well, so what does that take? One, it takes an understanding, a lot of understanding of yourself, right? So you're building self-awareness. We can have things like affinity biases where we, we like, like, you know, Alex, you and I were, were both wildcats. We both went, went to Northwestern. You know, we have to be mindful that that doesn't create some natural connection between us that, that impacts Todd, right? So we, these are things we have to pay attention to as we're, as we're, you know, working ourselves. So we have to grow people in their self-awareness. We have to help them understand what comes naturally to you. Okay. I can style switch between a direct and an indirect style of communication perhaps, but it gets harder for me to think about a different power structure as it relates to hierarchy. Cause I grew up in an environment where, you know, things were very, let's say structured. And so now you're saying, oh, it's a flat culture, like power doesn't matter. And I'm like, wait, what? Like power helps me get clarity. Like, how do I get clarity of how things get done? So it's a lot of, um, as you can tell through that, it's a lot of work to help people understand themselves, help people then understand themselves in interactions with others, and then ultimately understand the wider systems that they're in and how to navigate those. Yeah, I think it's really intriguing. I, I love the description of that opener of the framing of you know, one is complex, but this idea of dexterity and, and, and agility, the way you're describing that, I think makes makes a, a ton of sense. And it 
you know, I know that Alex and I have asked several of our, our guests that have come on about, you know, uh, how capable leadership is perceived differently around the world. And, and I don't want to just put the sort of the, the geo lens on it, but but I think there's so much more that can come from, you know, sort of developing in, in, in certain countries. So in, in you have lived, you know, well beyond Japan, France, England, Spain, uh, U.S., Denmark, mm-hmm. I think was yeah. a, a stint there. Um, without question, you're, you're, you're an absolute expert in sort of global leadership development, um, exact and, and specializing in intercultural communication. So I'd love it. You shared a little bit, but maybe could a couple other stories around how leadership specifically is perceived and manifest differently around the world. Um, because I think that that's for so many of the organizations that we're working with and our listeners, you know, they're, they're serving in these big, you know, sort of um, uh, global entities that, that have footprints of leadership pockets all across the world and, and trying to understand, you know, how it's perceived and manifest differently. What, what could you share or, or tell folks in that vein? Yeah, so it's interesting if you um, if you try and unpack this concept of leadership, we're ultimately exploring how do I show up in a way that makes other people one believe they can do more, want to do more, and and want to work with me to do great things, right? So then when you start looking at well, how do different cultures um, encourage and like what do they encourage, what do they reward, and what do they use as proxy symbols? for capability as a leader, right? So I remember, and, and I, granted this has been a little bit, bit of time, but I used to, like when I was living in Denmark, depending on the company I worked with, we'd take my bio and we'd flip the order um, because some cultures that I was working in, education really was, was it, right? And they needed to see that I had my master's degree. And so we would lead with that. I would say here where I'm based in California, you know, it's, it's one line at the bottom, um, and especially the longer that I've been in my career, it's really not about my education. Um, so sometimes there you see these subtle markers of difference in terms of what we tend to value. And hopefully in all cultures, we can learn to value beyond those markers. That to me is the deeper work, but still we have to be aware cultures kind of rep, you know, reward certain things. And then I think you come down to all kinds of, um, you know, I mentioned power. That is one how you um, how you demonstrate power as a leader, the degree to which you seek to demonstrate power as a leader varies incredibly across cultures. So um, Trompenars and Hofstede, who's, who've done a lot of the studies, they'll look at these power differences. And we have some cultures I mentioned when I said flat, you know, it's the ideas of the hierarchy is flat. And so you're not going to notice Necessarily, I'll give a very concrete example because I remember Alex that was the ask, and I probably haven't been meeting it yet. <laughs> but I remember when I lived in Denmark. I'm going to use the royal families, right? I, England, I've got roots there. The, the you know the royal family, it's very easy to see. There's lots of markers, Buckingham Palace, yes, right. It's very clearly marked. I remember being in Denmark and Copenhagen um, with a sort of friend who was actually a sort of a relative by choice. He had been my father's exchange student in high school and was Danish. And we were, we were just going around. He goes, oh yeah, yeah, there's the, there's the prince. I'm like, what, what do you mean there's the prince? It was like right about like, I, it was just like in a parking lot. I was like, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, this isn't how my understanding of royalty. Right? So those are subtle examples. And in both cultures, right, it was important in Denmark that the prince wasn't seen as too far removed, too above, et cetera. So those are examples. And of course they translate down into business in terms of what we expect of our leaders. Do we expect them 
you know, in my organization, we, we, with Mark Zuckerberg, like we expect him to be honest and forthright and pretty low key with us. Um, and he does, and he does that every week, which is pretty amazing. Um, so every culture has different um, attitudes and orientations. And sometimes when we start to feel this disconnect, like this person isn't doing things in the way that I want to, we need to start by saying, do I have, what are my expectations? of this person and could that be different than their expectations of themselves in that role? Yeah, I think it's a, not a cautionary tale, but a, a wonderful statement of trying to ever make yourself aware of, of the multiple lenses that exist and, and right. perceiving through the eyes of others. Yeah. And Todd, if I can build on that, then imagine what happens Please. where if instead of what I think is a lot of people's orientation, which is like, how do I want to come across and then like, what will I do to show up that way? Right. There's so many, so much written about like presence and so on and so forth. If the orientation is instead, who am I meeting with? How do I want them to experience me? What would they need to feel that way when they're engaging with me? It's a different, that is a, a like pragmatic example of perspective switching in the moment. And sometimes those small mechanisms make or break conversations. Because if you're asking yourselves those small questions right before a conversation, just notice that your orientation is a little bit more in touch with the other person, a little bit more motivated to understand what they might need. And you may not know uh, all of what they might need to experience you as somebody that's caring and thoughtful, et cetera, but it creates that curiosity. So I'm a big believer in just almost like the power of behavioral science and kind of hacking together little systems that can fundamentally make really powerful changes that are profound, even though the change itself is small. That's a funny base that a little bit, I got late, late to his, uh, his book, but just, just finished uh, Trevor Noah's born a crime. And he talks oh, about yeah. his use of language as allowing that perspective switching. And the fact that he could speak Zulu and he could speak Afrikaans and he could speak, and he would immediately identify the group he was approaching and find that way, asking himself those internal questions. How, how would they want to receive me? How could I connect to them? How could I, and yes, it was for a desired end state that he was after, which I would argue all business leaders are trying to do that, elevate the company, increase operations performance to elevate my people but but this the sort of this the, the the sort of primary lens of constantly switching and asking how can you know how how will others receive me i thought i thought was sort of brilliant and we need to find a way to be doing doing more of that which is not often not how we especially stateside in north america generally speaking i would say not not how we tend to tend to lead it's this is who i am as leader i'm showing up in this fashion get you know get in line or get behind me or follow, you know, follow me in the cult of personality way which is not 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 so conducive to building trust yes know. I would agree. And yes, Born a Crime is a beautiful, oh, such a good uh, beautiful book with some hard parts to read, but very important parts to read too. Yeah. No doubt. Does, um, does virtuality shift or subvert those attitudes or expectations in some way, how it is that you come to the table and present yourself? Like I found it very disarming when somebody interacts with me a certain way online like through a zoom and i think that i have a clar clarity around how it is that they're coming to the table and then all of a sudden i'll be at a trade show conference i meet them in that room and they are a totally it's like a dissociative experience they're a totally different energy and person um how do we how do we factor these modalities in when we're trying to come to the table in an authentic way you know the thing i try and remember um I think the Trevor Noah example is a really powerful one is too often. I think we think 
in at least two binary or dichotomous of this idea of identity, like one that I have one or that I have these master, I do have these master signifiers, like I'm a woman, et cetera. Um, but identity is really fluid. And so, you know, I, when I'm thinking about that, I, your example, Alex, reminded me of a colleague I worked with that I worked with for about a year and a half and just recently got to meet. And she, she's this wonderfully big personality. And because you only see people from the chest ups, when I met in person, she was actually much shorter than I thought. I'm like, Oh, I had no idea. Right. Just because she, 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 in the best way possible takes up more space than her smaller stature um, would connotate. So, you know, I think, I think part of it is just recognizing, like, we all have multiple identities, multiple um, manifestations of this identity is very fluid. And we, we, I think we've tried to it, our brains would like, and, and therefore enters all kinds of bias and things like that for everything to be clean. And like at this moment, this particular layer of my identity is popping up and, and trumping all the others. And that can happen. But I, the point being like, if, if we assume we're seeing the whole person when we're in a zoom, that's where we go wrong. If instead we say, I'm seeing a slice of this person in one particular setting and situation, and I'm curious to learn more it invites our brains to not feel like they've sized up a person and know a person because they've seen them in one context. Um, so I think that's, again, you're going to see me pushing, like, I, I mean, I created a company or <laughs> curiosity in the name, so I'm a big proponent of it, but I think that's so much of the work, especially in these times is to stay open to others and not get caught in the temptation to close down, size up that sort of thing. Yeah, so so maybe Kate, you 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 took us there, maybe inadvertently, but but let me ask because I I know maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the beginnings and the history of, of the Culturosity Group and, and Culturosity.com and how it came to be, you know, what it was all about, and and perhaps most poignantly, you know, what are some of the capabilities that you developed from there that inform your your current work today and, and how you approach um, you know as an as an executive as a leader as a uh, as an employee. Oh, yes. I mean, you are really, both of you are making me do these long callbacks, like prior eras. I'm like, oh, culturosity. So, you know, I gave you a little bit on the genesis of that business. I was living in Japan at the time. I felt it was really critical to have for people to be more curious and interested. And I understood I was realistic. I said, I get it. People are busy. And if it's not on their radar, um, they don't notice. And there's a lot of things that can be on people's radar. So let's start with what's on your radar and then find a connection to another culture. Um, I mean, when you start a business, you learn all kinds of capabilities. I, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of different jobs in my life. We can, we can talk through some of them that might be interesting. First one was cleaning offices. Um, and I do believe you learn a ton and not just about yourself, but about human nature and everything else through any, any type of uh, job or role that you have. Um, but I think in particular with that business, it was the, the work for me was really just trying to figure out, okay, people are busy. How do I help them? What's a business model that's going to enable people. I spent a lot of time, um, with teams when I ran that company, helping them to understand if I'd get called in, if there were high levels of miscommunication or low levels of trust. My husband's a firefighter. I used to joke we had similar jobs um, because I wasn't called in to help set up these really diverse teams. I was called in when there were like fires. I was like, ah, we have the wrong equation here, but I get it. And like, 
And then my work was really to help them humanize each other and break it down. Sometimes there were personality differences. Sometimes there were national cultures. Sometimes there were org cultural differences. And it actually didn't matter. And you probably, back to that multiple identities, you probably couldn't peg it on any one. But the point was people had stopped seeing each other and seeking to more deeply understand each other. So that was a lot of the work that I did. And then through that, it ended up creating my path toward leadership development because I would watch these teams and environments and increasingly see when you're trying to create an inclusive environment, a lot comes down to the leader and the tone that they set. And this holds true in a in a very like hierarchical type of leadership or in a more low key, like they're still very subtly sending signals. And so that prompted my deep belief in leaders being levers in healthy teams, healthy organizations, and therefore my deep passion and focus and pivot there. It's a shame to speak in a, to take us back in time. It almost reminds me that that phrasing of, you know, the, the idea of, um, it was from first break all the rules with Kirk Kaufman and the mm-hmm. idea that you know pe- people don't leave companies they 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 leave managers right mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. knowing the power that you know leaders have irrespective of the nature of the culture they're they're operating in you know they, they set the norms the practices the, the tone the, the, the cadence the, the nature of how they interact you know how they respond to feedback and I I, I wonder if they're you know we again back to this you know could we be doing more and should we be leading with that first and foremost versus, you know, how can you execute on the PL? <laughs> what's a way to, you know, present in a board meeting or the, like, what's a better approach, especially if mass access is the workforce and we need to keep people. Like if you want a company to run, you better be able to keep your people. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe there's some things that we should be doing differently um, in terms of level of focus. I don't know if you've, you've got to take there in my, my, my random thought on that front. And there's so much we could be doing, but you know, should there be a different prioritization? to how we're developing and and the nature of what we're asking and and, um, demanding of of our leaders today. Yeah, I I think a lot of this boils down to a misnomer. So some people would say that the work I do is soft skill development. I'm like, well, therein lies the problem because if you call it a soft skill, it sounds like, eh, like (laughs) Kate's doing some California woo-woo stuff. And I'm like, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the hard work. Um, of connecting with people, helping leaders develop themselves, reach their next level of capacity to engage to your point and understand what their people need. Like this is the make or break, which when we step back and we think about what goes into that bucket of quote unquote soft skills, all of us who lived in a hard pressed business world can understand, I think the value of that. But I also, I think a lot of it stems from there. I'm really fortunate that where I am, there's a lot of understanding and and investment in leadership. And we define leadership, not just as, you know, good decisions on Excel spreadsheets, but who you are, how you show up, how you grow people, how you grow yourself, how you do what's right. um, And and really appreciate that's where the, that's where the heart of things are. Um, but I do think a lot comes back to this misnomer of soft skills. And if I could eradicate it from our dictionaries and vernacular, I would. I'm, I'm right with you on that. We, we've tried amongst you know, many of our clients, you know, where you rephrase as power skills or critical skills. And you know, that, that idea is a, probably a, a much more apropos terminology for it um, in, in that sense. Can I ask one more along these lines, Kate? Because it has me, it has me thinking you know, about... Um, 
yes, we've talked about the scale piece and Alex asked about that, you know, sort of before or the prioritization of where we sort of de develop leaders. The theme that we've seen a lot in some research and we work a lot with, you know, big industry analysts and, you know, done a fair amount of efforts with Brandon Hall and a lot of what they were talking about. And I just came off a webinar with uh, Claude Werner, their head HGM principal analyst uh, last week and was talking about this, this two big themes coming out around leadership. One is this democratization. It needs to be far more than just select individuals, not your high pose any longer. It needs to cascade across the entire organization. If you want to move with pace, be innovative, be relevant for, you know, the next, you know, 30, you know uh, three to three to five years. And then this idea that it can't just be episodic. It has to be a continuous nature, which I think is a little bit uh, different than how we've sort of thought about, you know, sort of leadership in the past. Well, we'll, we'll send folks to this, <laughs> this experience or this offsite, and then that will be done. And then we can revisit it in several years. And, and it seems to be that the enterprises that are getting it right, I think yours, yours absolutely being one of those are saying, no, no, you know, it, it needs to both be democratized across the org. And we need to find a way to make sure that we're doing it in a consistent, continuous development fashion to build that capability and that muscle across the org. Accurate, inaccurate? Would you challenge that? What would oh, you take? Um, I, I mean, if if your listeners could see me, they would have seen me like vigorously knocking <laughs> throughout the whole thing. So um, I think you know where I stand on this, but <laughs> to fill everyone else in listening. Um, so first, yes, 100% on the democratization. So the way that we think about that is um, really understanding the, the context of leadership that is required in today's day and age. And I, I, our industry is certainly in, in this bucket, but I believe many, many industries and, and the world itself has entered into a period or a way of being, which is high complexity. And what we know from complexity research is that in particular, so I would say democratizing leadership is a good thing to do generally, but it is critical. It is essential in complexity because you, it, the system will break because you never have all the information. There's a lot of unknowns. And so the goal is always, when you think about democratization, you're democratizing leadership, you're also democratizing decision-making, right? And are really trying to help decisions being made by the people who have the information to make those. And in a complex system, that's not gonna be in one location. It's gonna be dispersed and it needs to get into the hands of the right people. So 100% to democratizing leadership and decision-making. And I mean, that we talk, you know, I'll just say this and then I'll, I'll talk about the episodic, but this is, you know, this apparently is turning into a podcast where Kate gets to rant about things she doesn't like in terms of names, but, you know, I think sometimes leadership gets defined as this positional big capital L phenomenon. And I, you know, I am blessed to have two young daughters and I see incredible examples of leadership. And like, when you think about when we all started learning leadership, it wasn't in a grad school class. It was on the playground when you were six, when you had that first choice point, when you saw somebody be unkind towards somebody else. And did you step in? Right. And like, so I, 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 I think we need to challenge the formality of leadership. It's a way of being, it's a way of um, embodying, and we've all been practicing it. Some of us more than others, but it has roots that go deep. So it's like democratizing it and, um, increasingly it's like honor. I want to like honor. Sometimes it's like, we've all been practicing leadership. It's a choice point. Some of us, you know, we need to choose it more, but okay. I will hop off of my pedestal and then <laughs> move to this question of the episodic hundred percent to your point. And I, I would say, again, these last two years um, with COVID have probably accelerated what we've always felt. So at Meta, we have an, uh, uh, 
basically a strategy to help support our leaders, which is to say, to your point on it can't be episodic, it says, well, we need to meet leaders in the different kinds of moments that they're experiencing. So that means the micro moment, like right before this meeting. Uh, today, I'm dealing with something challenging or complex. Are we able to meet them and give them the tools and the resources they might need in that little micro moment, 10 seconds, two minutes in a conversation, right? Um, it, that micro moment can be an end of meeting reflection, being like, that didn't go as well as I thought it could go. Am I taking the time to just be like, cool, what was my role in that? What would I want to do differently next time, right? So there's micro moments that you want to just have the tools and the space and the systems to learn. There's what we call current moments, which is like something's happening. Like I mentioned the importance of complexity. We even ran in the height of everything going on sessions for our leaders saying, how do you lead in complexity? How is it different than leading in a just complicated or clear or chaotic? And how do you know which it is going? I'm referencing the Kinevin model uh, here. And so I think there's that, like in this, in this moment, what do people need? We ran sessions on burnout, right? We read sessions on um, prioritization. So that's really um, important. And then yes, you do have these defining moments. And I think these are the hallmarks, hence why people think about those. We call defining moments of like, maybe you're in a big transition. Maybe you've just arrived and you've got all this incredible skills and experience, but you're coming to our organization and you have to learn how to do things here. And that transition can be a significant one, or you've just got a new remit um, or something's fundamentally pivoted in the business. And now we need to shift how we're gonna approach something. So I do also believe in the power of, those defining moments where say, okay, something's coming together. All these factors are coming together. And this is a really fascinating time for you to do some deeper work to really leverage. I forget who said it, but it's like, we all, we go through change. It might've been William Bridges. We go through change. All of us go through change. Not all of us go through transition because the difference is to actually leverage the changes that you're going through to learn and that enables transition. And so those are the moments that we want to be working more in depth with our leaders to helping them figure out what they need. What is your next level of leadership? How do you step toward that? What ha habits and behaviors are going to need to leave behind? What new ones are you going to take on? How are you going to get comfortable stumbling? Because it's going to be new and awkward and hard, and you're going to suck at it at first and help people through that journey. Can we talk a little bit about coaching and mentorship as part of that process? Because you've said that mentorship today isn't necessarily enough, that we also must champion and, yeah. and you've also you've also talked about the value of self-coaching and finding flow. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about both of those ideas um, and, and if you can uh, expand on them. Yeah. So so um, I'll start maybe in the in the back, work my way back through those three three part questions. Way to make it easy for me, Alex. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a pleasure, Kate. <laughs> Note to future guests. No. Uh, <laughs> Um, so let me talk about self-coaching. I had a really interesting experience um, coming out of university and we can pontificate about the university experience probably on a whole other podcast, but I came out, I, I, you know, I had these deep desires to fundamentally change the world. And then you kind of hit corporate America and you're like, yeah, what's your entry level job? And I'm like, oh, right. Not okay. So I had to do a lot of soul searching. I ended up having a great opportunity where I joined a very, very small skincare company in LA, and I was charged with launching their product to the Spanish speaking market. And it, it was a really interesting, really challenging. I remember going to Lubbock, Texas at the time to work with our call center reps. So there was a lot of challenge and, and to be honest, a lot more opportunity given to me because I chose a small company than for most people, probably in their first 
job. And on, on paper, it looked fantastic. I had a great salary, great title, et cetera. The only problem was I was miserable. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shoot, I've just done what is the step after university if you're following, quote unquote, the path, who knows what this path is, and I'm not happy. And I, I really, it sounds really maybe backwards to say, but I am so grateful that first job was so bad for me because if it were mediocre, I probably would have carried on. But I was like, I am really not feeling this and I'm not happy and I can't figure out why. Then I got introduced to flow. So Mihai Kazikmahai's incredible work on this optimal state where flow is where we lose our sense of time and we just get completely immersed, right? And we, it's, it's like my um, non-hedonistic version of happiness kind of thing. And what I started to do was track and understand what are the activities that I'm doing that put me in that state. And I remember cataloging it because I was like, what's going on? And there you can see, like, I'm a systems thinker. So I'm like, my system isn't working. Let's, let's analyze this. Let's, let's debug this. And so I did start to jot those down. And what I discovered was I really loved, I loved going down to La Raza, which was the Spanish like radio at the station and making the spots. So I loved the bridging into other cultures. I loved um, helping people, right. To say, okay, in this case, it's like the, the you know, the competition was not L'Oreal, right. It was going to be like Abuela's recipe that she had on for skincare and things like that. So I enjoyed um, really trying to work to understand and bridge. And I enjoyed the communication of it. And I enjoyed the helping. And so that helped me really say, okay, well, that's not a product launch job, right? Like the pieces I really, that really brought me to life were like fringe requirements of what was my core role. And so I'm like, okay, I need to adjust this. And you know, that, that's a longer story sent me to Japan and other places. So point being, um, we are best equipped to know ourselves and what really the, what Mihai offered to me, I say that like we're friends, I wish we were um, by first name. I just find his last name a little hard to say, <laughs> um, but you know, as we, what he gave me was a set of tools to coach myself. And that's what I think is incredibly important for us all to have. Now, to your point on coaching and mentoring and why I say championing, um, I find some aspects of mentoring to be a bit antiquated. Like it has this, um, I know more than you, let me impart my wisdom to you um, kind of connotation. And, you know, most of the men formal mentoring relationships I've had, I'm learning just as much maybe arguably more than the person that I'm quote unquote mentoring. So I think the premise there is a little um, outdated, I want to say maybe, um, or it, it is too narrow in its frame. And so I am a believer in mutuality in all relationships. I do think we can learn a lot from each other. Championing, by the way, to me is goes beyond. So when I think I do a lot on women's leadership and championing women means instead of just, um, let's say, uh, cheerleading them, it's easy, easier to be like, really like positive and like, go get it. Championing is also being like, Hey, I want to call. I want you to see yourself in this moment. I think you're doing something that isn't going to help you. And I'm going to have the courage to tell you that. Cause I care enough about you that I may even put some aspect of our relationship at risk. And when people see that you're like really there for them, not there for them when it's easy, that makes a material difference. Um, so that's to me some of the differences between 
coaching and championing is a lot of coaching is value in the moment. And championing is also like the conversations when somebody's not there being like, you need to talk to this person. They're amazing talent. Go, you know, go meet with them, et cetera. Um, so I just, I like us broadening it. Um, you can tell my whole orientation is like, let's not pigeonhole things, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and We're our putting on the list of cool. words to be yes. pre-framed. I love yeah. it. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Without question. So, so last question, Kate, for you. Can, can you talk a little bit about a few of the major influences, uh, uh, mentors, uh, champions uh, in, in your life who, who believed in you and your approach uh, to your career and your professional pursuits? Oh, yes, I certainly can. Um, oh, I have so many. It's, I and feel very lucky to do so. So let me see if I can highlight maybe three different types. Okay. Um, I'll start with my mom. Um, and I want to recognize not everybody actually has a parent who genuinely like mentors, coaches, et cetera. They may caretake. And if you get good caretaking, that's a win, because uh, parenting can be hard. So, um, but I had a mom who, who always pushed me to think beyond, to do things unconventionally. Uh, my dad did a lot of international business and she said to him that, look, there's certain places you can't go without the family going. So I got exposure um, to a lot of different dynamics. Um, so I, she was a business owner herself. Um, she gave me that first job cleaning offices. Um, uh, so like I, she's definitely been one of my early, obviously childhood influences um, in the beyond being a mom category, if that makes sense, or beyond the basics of what a good mom would do. It was sort of that peripheral pushes she would give me that were really powerful. I also had an incredible mentor when I started to get into the leadership development space. And I think about this because it's also just the most beautiful gift you can give somebody. And it was this deep belief that he had in me. And, you know, and I have to tell you this, when you get that one, it's like, are you sure? Do you see me? I mean, I got some stuff to work on, right? <laughs> you know, um, but what that opens up, I think what, or early as I became a leader, I saw what opens up, like people can surprise themselves and what they're capable of when somebody else has just a deep, like unwavering belief. And I've had that a couple of times in my life and with a couple of different mentors, and it is the most gorgeous, gorgeous gift because it's a gift that you can internalize. Like it actually changes your understanding of yourself and you see yourself doing things you didn't think possible. Like the very first book I wrote, Putting Diversity to Work, I wrote in 2001, thanks to a mentor who I reached out to. And I said, look, I'm at university. I'm going to the career place. They're saying there's like only one path and it's these big five consultancies. And I know enough about myself to know I don't want to do that. Can you, can you, you know, give me some counsel? Cause he, this is George Simon's an interculturalist. And he said, yeah, come work with, you know, like we started and he said, come work with me. He gave me an opportunity to write a book at like 20. I'm like, nobody should have that opportunity. It was wicked cool. And, you know, he gave, gave enough guardrails to um, support me. Um, but he also saw enough in me to make that investment, which was incredibly gratifying. And so I think a lot about that, just in, when you break it down, it's this powerful combination of safety and belief and, and think, I mean, just take, think for yourself, like if you've ever had those moments and unfortunately few of us, not ever, all of us do, but ever had that moment where you feel fully safe and fully believed in, I mean, 
not to do a throwback to your title, but then think about what people are wildly capable of. Like it just opens up a ton. NovoEd empowers organizations to build deep capabilities rather than mere skills through cohort-based learning that drives true readiness to perform on the job. For more episodes of the Wildly Capable podcast or for more information on NovoEd, please visit us at NovoEd.com. Yeah.